Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Uh, and I just want to ask, uh, how many of you would say you probably have at least one unspent gift card somewhere in your possession? Anybody? Okay, yeah. Uh, last year, or actually in 2014, uh, the Harvard Business Review said that over a six-year period, $41 billion in gift cards went unused. Over six years, $41 billion. Uh, our retailers love them. McDonald's, uh, JCPenney, whoever you want to name, they love it because we're spending money and we're not getting anything in return except a little plastic card. The average American home, according to the same study, has $300 worth of unused gift cards right now. And, and, and now that I've said that, for the rest of this time, some of you won't be able to think about anything other than, I got to get home. And I got to check that junk drawer. I got to get into my, my glove compartment of my car and find those gift cards. So while you're daydreaming about free lattes at Starbucks, think fondly of me. Now, here's another story that's related, and you'll see how in just a moment. Some of you remember 30 years ago, the movie Dances with Wolves. If you haven't seen it, you've had plenty of time. So uh, it's a story of an American soldier at the end of the Civil War who takes a post at, a, at a, an abandoned military fort out on the American frontier and gets to be friends with the Indian tribe that's nearby, who happen to be Lakota Sioux. And halfway through the movie, there's, a, there's an intense moment where the Sioux realize that a rival tribe is getting ready to invade them. And we know this tribe, we've seen them earlier in the movie, they're very brutal, and so we're worried for our friends. And, and then the, the American soldier, the, the lieutenant, realizes, hey, I've got all these rifles that are buried at the fort where I, where I serve. And so he goes back, he digs up the rifles, he takes them to the Sioux, he tra trains them on how to use the rifles, and they're ready for the battle, right? Well, the battle begins, the enemy comes rushing through the village, and you see a Sioux warrior come out with his rifle in his hand, take it by the barrel, and whack the enemy soldier across the head like a club. And so the lieutenant grabs the gun out of his hand and says, shoot the gun. And so they do, they start shooting, and they win this incredible victory. So today we're in the last of our 59 one another's. We're talking about serve one another. And you may hear that and say, okay, that doesn't sound very exciting. But I say that the words we're going to read today, the command serve one another is a life-changing command. In fact, these two verses we're going to look at, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, I say that if we began to, to follow those two verses faithfully. We'd be like people who discovered billions of dollars worth of gift cards. We'd think, why have I not been using this? We'd be like the, those Sioux warriors who suddenly discover, I've got power in my hands that I never knew I had. I can, I can accomplish more than I never thought I could. Why didn't I use it before? So let me show you what I mean as we read verses 10 through 11 of chapter 4. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So two things real quickly about those two verses. First of all, it says, as each has received a gift. Those are the first words of the, of the passage the word gift there is a Greek word, charisma. You ever heard that word? We use it in English. We, we talk about someone who's charismatic. And what that word literally means is a gift of grace. So God's grace, as we know, if you grew up in Sunday school, 
or if you're saved, you know that it's by God's grace. God has given it to you as a gift. So a gift, a grace gift, is a little piece of His grace that He has bestowed on you to deal out to others. We are dealing grace to people who need it, every single one of us. And that's the point. As each has received a gift. That means all of us. That doesn't just mean the people who ordained or the people who call themselves called. We are all called. We're all gifted just in different ways. The second thing I want you to see is he said he calls us good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, we don't use the term steward very often, but what it means is a manager, someone who, who oversees the money or the possessions or resources of the company for someone who owns it. And so, if you read the parables of Jesus, and Jesus did most of His teaching through parables or stories, He told a lot of stories about stewards, and they're all scary. When you really read them, they'll scare the pants off you. Now, the one, the one that, I, that sticks with me is the story of the talents. A talent in the ancient world, in, in Jesus' world, was a, was a unit of money. So picture a bag of money worth about what a working man would make in a year. So in the parable of the talents, there are these three stewards, and the wealthy man they work for is going out of town for a period of time. But before he leaves, he gives his money, some, some of his money, to his three stewards. To one, he gives five talents. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, that's $250,000. To the second one, he gives two talents. Let's say that's 100000 And to the third, he gives one talent. So let's say that's 50000 And he goes out of town. He's gone for a while. He comes back. He says, okay, guys, what did you do with my money? And the first steward comes to him and says, I doubled your money, master. Here, here's half a million dollars. And the second one says, I doubled your money too. Look, here's $200,000. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servants. I trusted you with a little. From now on, I'm going to trust you with a lot. And then he says to the third servant, what did you do with my money? And the third servant is very sheepish, and he's kind of bowing and scraping. And he says, well, master, I knew that you take your money really seriously, and so I was afraid that if I messed anything up, I'd get in trouble. So I just buried your money in a hole in the ground to make sure that none of it was lost. So here it is, every penny, you can count it. And the master says, you're fired. Throw him out into the unemployment line where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice, he didn't lose any of the master's money. He just didn't do anything with it. I think what that parable tells us is that that's what judgment is going to look like. Someday we'll stand before the Lord, like we said last week, we'll have to give an accounting for what we did with what God gave us. Last week we talked about we'll have to account for how we responded to the relationships God brought into our lives, the opportunities, the people we were called upon to love, to encourage. But I think also we'll have to account for the gifts that you've been given, that I've been given. God has chosen to give you something supernatural, some ability that only you can do in quite the way you can do it. What have you done with it? That's what he's going to want to know on Judgment Day. Again, not that your salvation is at stake because your salvation depends only on Christ's death for you on the cross. But I want to stand before him and say, Lord, I've been a good steward. I've done my best. I have I've done something with what you gave me. I don't want to bury it in the ground. So last month when we were in England for our mission trip, we got to, we got to go to St. Paul's Cathedral. Which, if you don't know, St. Paul's is this massive, massive church, this great uh, ornate place of worship, but it's also, it's also a place of national memorial. So you have, you have 
absolutely, you have your choir, you have your pulpit, you have everything you expect in a church, but you also have monuments to different great people in British history. And the first one you notice when you walk in, in the nave of the church, is a monument to the Duke of Wellington. I think we have a picture of it. It's literally 100 feet tall, just towers over everything. And then when you go a little further in, there's his tomb, and his tomb is just as impressive. It's not as tall, but it's this massive, massive vault, and it's guarded by these four stone lions. And you think, who was Wellington? What did he do? Well, he won the Battle of Waterloo. He was the victorious general that defeated Napoleon, that stopped Napoleon and the, and the armies of France and their allies from conquering all of Europe, that basically ended decades of bloody warfare. And so he received this hero's welcome, this hero's tribute when he died. I mean, in the National Cathedral, this is his monument. But on the tour that I was on, they pointed out, that's the way we used to remember victory. When, the, when a great victory was won, we'd say, okay, who was the person in charge? Let's, let's glorify that person. Let's honor that person. But today we do it differently. As time went on, they said, we started to realize it doesn't take a general to win a battle. It takes a whole army to win a battle. So when something great happens, let's remember all the people who fought. So, for instance, in that same cathedral, there's a little chapel dedicated to the 28,000 Americans who died defending England in World War II. I think we have a picture of that, too. So, yeah, right there, there's no names. It's just this, let's remember the 28,000 men and women who died defending our country, even though they weren't from here. And that's a great picture of what the church should be. You see, oftentimes, all we talk about in a church is, well, who's the pastor? Well, is he a good preacher? Is he a good leader? Does he do a good job? Well, that church is doing really well. Look, that church is growing. That, that church is doing good things. That must be a really good pastor. He must be on the ball. Well, that church is struggling. They, they haven't grown in a while. They're actually losing. Boy, they must have a really bad pastor. Well, it actually takes an entire church. So if anything good happens at First Baptist Conroe or any other church in God's kingdom, it won't be because of the person behind the pulpit or the person with REV in front of his name. It'll be because ordinary people start using their gifts. Ordinary people start dealing out grace like we're called to do. That's what it takes to change the world. That's what it took to see a world turned upside down 2,000 years ago, and it still does. So, two questions. Number one, what are these gifts? And number two, how do I find my gift? That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of my time. So, what are these gifts? What are we talking about when we talk about spiritual gifts, grace gifts? Uh, there are actually 20 specific spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible, mostly in the letters of Paul. This is my opinion. I don't think the ones listed in Scripture are the only gifts there are, because nowhere are the lists the same. I don't think it's an exhaustive list. I think there's probably infinite numbers of gifts God can give. But of the 20 gifts mentioned in Scripture, well, let's talk about them, uh, they are divided into two categories by Peter. Peter doesn't mention any specific gifts. He mentions two categories of gifts. He says they're speaking gifts. Those are the ones we're familiar with. Someone who can preach a sermon. Someone who can teach a Bible study. Someone, I believe, someone who can sing in such a way that it draws us into the presence of God. Or someone who can write so that we can understand theological truth and apply it to life. I believe even people who can do artwork, who can draw, who can paint, who can sculpt, and it draws us closer to God. I believe that's a communicating gift. So that falls into the category of speaking gifts. If you are communicating God's Word, if you're communicating God's truth, you have one of these speaking gifts. 
And his advice to us, his command to us is, speak as though you're speaking the very oracles of God. In other words, make sure, make sure you say only what God wants you to say. He's not trying to puff us up. I know that when I get up here and speak, my words aren't the words of God. I hope you all understand that, right? I'm not a prophet. I'm not anointed by God so that, or an apostle so that my every word is inspired by Him. All I can do, the best I can do, in fact, what God expects of me is to be faithful to the words of this book. And that's true of all of you who are called to teach life group classes or Bible studies outside of this church, whether it's a kindergartner or a preschooler all the way up to our oldest members, you need to be faithful to this book. They don't need our opinions. They don't need any of it. They need God's Word. Be faithful to it. Then there are serving gifts. And there's so many serving gifts. There's so many ways to serve others in God's name that don't involve verbal communication. It might be, for instance, the gift of helping which is mentioned by the Apostle Paul. And I take that to be the person who loves to do what needs to be doing without expecting any recognition or acclaim. So it could be somebody who serves on the usher team or in the nursery or on the sound and lighting team, or it could be somebody who does maintenance work for their neighbors or, or somebody who goes, gives rides to someone who doesn't have a car or somebody who likes sitting with people in the hospital while their loved ones are in surgery. There's people with the gift of administration. These are people who, are, who like to put things together in exactly the way that it should go. And, and they're great to help us steward our finances faithfully. You don't have to be a CPA to be on the finance committee. You don't have to have a particular education. You just have to know. You have to, have, have to be gifted in knowing how things should work and be willing to use that gift. But you can also, outside of the church, you can also be the person who helps a neighbor get out of debt, who helps somebody find a job because... You're organized. You're, you're an administrator. Then there's the gift of mercy, which makes some people especially passionate about relieving human suffering. We're all called to be merciful. We're all called to help those who are hurting. But for some of you, that comes naturally. Some of you, they, that's not a chore. You enjoy doing it. You, you love to visit people who are shut in or, or, or tutor a child or mentor a prisoner. You don't give a few bucks to a homeless person. You get involved in their, in their plight until you've found them a job, until you've gotten them a place to stay. And then there's the gift of wisdom. Some of you have this gift. I've been around you. All of us, again, we're all called to seek after wisdom and we'll grow in wisdom if we do, but some people are just pillars of wisdom. They're the kinds of people who they may not say much, but when they speak, the rest of us listen. Because we've learned. They tend to be right about things. They tend to know how life works. They tend to know right from wrong, and they should use that gift. If you have a serving gift, then the command of Scripture is, ask God for strength to serve Him well. To serve Him with all your might. Don't stop serving. Don't say, well, I've done enough. It's time for someone else to pick, it up, pick up the ball and go. You don't have to serve in the way you have in the past, but you need to serve. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. You may stop getting paid for what you do for a living, but you're not retiring from God's kingdom. You have a part to play. Keep serving. Remember, you know, there's only one little mention of this little boy in Scripture and it's in one of the Gospels. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, remember He fed them five loaves and two fish? You know where those five loaves and two fish came from, right? It was a little boy's lunch. Well, I don't know this, but I'm willing to bet, if I were a betting man, the disciples did not steal that boy's lunch from Him. 
Now, don't you? I mean, the disciples were pretty thick-headed, but I don't think they, even they were that foolish. I think that little boy said, oh, you're looking for food? Well, here's, here's what I have. Thinking, well, it's not going to go very far, but look what God did with it. You may think, my gift is not much. Give it over to Him and just see what He can do with it. He will multiply what you offer Him, and that is a promise. Note that neither side, neither category is seen as more important. He doesn't say, you know, we have those speaking gifts, and those are really important, so cultivate the speaking gifts, seek the speaking gifts, and if you're not quite qualified for that, well, you know, serving gifts are are a nice little consolation prize. He doesn't say that, because the truth is we need both kinds. If you're baking a cake, which one do you need more, the eggs or the sugar? Anybody ever baked a cake? You need both. Now, the sugar gets all the glory because that's what you taste. But try making a cake without eggs, and what do you have? Really bad pudding is what you have because it doesn't hold together. You're building a football team. What do you need more, offense or defense? Well, you actually need both. If you got offense, you're scoring lots of points, but you're giving up lots too. You need both. You need serving gifts. You need speaking gifts. So the question is, how do I know what gifts I have? You probably know this already, but there are tests you can take. All you have to do is go online and Google uh, spiritual gift test, and you'll see probably a dozen or more. And those are fun. I've used those in the past. Those are interesting. If you want to play around with that, great. But that's not how you discover your gifts. You know why? Number one, those are made by human beings. That's not made by God, okay? Okay. I say that spiritual gift tests are interesting, but it's sort of like measuring yourself to decide whether or not you're a good basketball player. You know, they measure you and you're like, oh, you're six foot two. You must be a good basketball player. Well, if you can't dribble and you can't shoot and you can't run, I got news for you. You're just a tall roadblock. You're not a good basketball player. So, so how do you know if you're a good basketball player? You play the game. How do you know what your spiritual gifts are? You can take a test. That's great. You find out what your gifts are by getting into the game, by serving. You'll never know if you can teach a Bible study until you teach a Bible study. You'll never know if you're good working with children until you've worked with children. You'll never know if you're a comfort to someone who's in the hospital until you visit people in the hospital. You have to serve. And while you're serving, look for these two criteria. It says in our Scripture, use it to serve one another. To serve one another. In other words, if you have a gift, if you're using your gift, it will bless other people. They will be ministered to by you. So I'm reminded of the farmer uh, who was plowing. This is a long time ago. He's walking behind the plow as his mules push or pull. And as he's he's plowing, his mind kind of wanders. He looks up at the sky and he happens to see, wow, that, that cloud formation looks like the letter P. And then he notices off to the right, there's another one that looks an awful lot like a letter C. And he immediately stops, gets down on his knees, and thanks the Lord for calling him to preach Christ, because that's what the P and the C have to stand for. God has called me to preach Christ. And the next Sunday, he goes to his church, which happens to be without a pastor at the time, and he gets there early, and he says, brothers and sisters, I've been called to preach Christ, so you don't need to call a pastor. I will be your pastor. You don't even have to pay me. I am called to do this, and I want to do this. 
And they say, well, well, praise God, brother. Well, do you have a sermon for us today? He says, as a matter of fact, I do. I've been working on it ever since last Tuesday when I saw those letters in the sky. And he proceeds to preach a message for them. And when he's done, they all say, brother, can you step outside while we talk about this? And he does. And then they call him back in and they say, brother, we are, we are just convinced that the Lord has called you to plant corn. <laughs> if you are using a gift that is really of the Holy Spirit, people will know it. That doesn't mean you won't be criticized. I got news for you. If you ever try to do anything for the Lord, you will be criticized. People within the church are some of the sharpest tongued people around. I hate to say it, but it's true. So that doesn't mean everybody's going to love you, but you will see signs that your ministry is ministering. Your ministry is helping others. It will serve other people. It won't just serve you and your ego. Secondly, God is glorified when we use our gifts. The credit, the glory goes to Him. Now, what does that term mean, glory? Because we use it a lot in church. I don't think we really know what it means. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was His physical presence. When you saw some aspect of God's presence, that was His glory. So, for instance, when the Israelites were following the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day, or when Moses was up on the mountaintop of Sinai and he saw God, he saw uh, those, the, the glory of God up on top of that mountain. Or when Elijah in the cave heard that gentle whisper and knew that was God passing by. Or when Jesus was up on top of Mount Hermon and suddenly his clothes and his skin became so bright white that no one could look at him. That was the glory of God. That was God in His physical presence, in a sense, in a, in a way that we could see and not die. And in all those cases, no one looked at that and said, hey, what's going on? They knew God is here. And that's the point. God is glorified means that when you use your gifts, people will know God is at work in this person. Even unbelievers will say, something's going on there. They won't be able to deny something that I cannot explain is happening through this person. I don't know why they love me the way they do. I don't know why they're so merciful. I don't know why they serve so faithfully. I don't know why he has so much wisdom. I don't know why when she speaks to me, it gets down into my soul and bothers me until I come to a point of repentance. In other words, people will look at you and say, God is in you if you're using your gifts. Now, I'm, I realize a lot of you don't go see comic book movies, but many of you do. You don't have to, we don't have to have a confessional here, but the first Avengers movie came out seven years ago. For those of you that don't watch these kinds of movies, the Avengers are a group of superheroes who decide to band together and form a team to defend the world. The first Avengers movie made one and a half billion dollars with a B. The last one came out this past summer, and it made $2.8 billion, probably more since I read that article a couple weeks ago. And the funny thing is, when they first started talking about these movies, a lot of people said it's never going to work. And the reason why was because people who are into comic book characters, really into them, I'm not one of them, but they are very loyal to their favorite heroes. So if you're a Captain America fan, you love Captain America. If you're a an Iron Man fan, you're into him if you're a Black Panther fan and so forth. And if that's your favorite person, you're used to seeing or reading a comic book where that's the main character or going to a movie where that's the main character and they get all the good lines and they do all the heroic stuff. 
But if you had a movie with 12 superheroes together, somebody's going to get the short end of the stick, and people are going to be angry. Well, my guy didn't get to say funny things. Well, my, my character didn't get to do the, the heroic stuff. And yet, the makers of these movies, in an ingenious way, found a way to have every character have their moment, every character be, do what they do best, and so everyone was happy, and it made billions of dollars. And you may say, well, what on earth does that do with us? Well, that's a picture of the church. Because what is a church? A church is a group of human beings who each have been gifted by God in some unique way. Every single one of us. And when the church functions like the church should function, nobody has the front row seat. Nobody has the pinnacle position. Everybody plays their role. Everybody does their thing. Everybody does what they were born to do. Everyone has their moment to accomplish something eternally significant. And we celebrate every single one of those things. We accomplish things that make the world sit up and say, God is there. What other explanation is there for this group of people? It's why a small group of ordinary people, not, those, not so different from you and me, turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago, and it's why God still uses the local church to accomplish His purposes on earth to this day. And you might say, okay, that's a terrible analogy because I don't even want to be a superhero. Can't I just be average? Can I just be the guy or the lady who believes the right stuff and stays away from the big vices and goes to church on Sundays and dies and goes to heaven? And yes, you can. Because again, your salvation does not depend on what you do or don't do. It's all about what He did for you. But what I just described to you, doesn't that sound an awful lot like the guy who buried his bag of gold in the ground? Can I just be average and not do anything for God? Can I just, can I just go to church and go home and go about my life? Do you really want to be that person? Do you really want to be that steward? And others of you would say, well, it's not that I don't want to be. It's that I just don't think I am. I, I don't feel heroic. I don't feel supernaturally gifted. I, I, I get more wrong than I get right. And I would say, join the club. You know, we have jackets. But here's the good news. I said earlier that in a, in a good church, we don't make monuments to one person, but there's an exception to that, of course. There are two monuments that will stand for all time, and one is a cross on a hill called Golgotha, and one is an empty tomb. And the same love that led Jesus to that cross enables Him to see you through different eyes than you see yourself, enables to see beyond your sin and your weakness your inconsistency. He sees you and me as only a Savior can, and the same power that raised Him out of that tomb can transform you and me into people who deal out grace, who change lives, who change the world one soul at a time. Now, does that sound like something worth living for? Does that sound like something you want to be a part of? Because I can't think of anything more worth living for than that.